Our reading today is from Psalm 10. Psalm chapter 10. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of these desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we wrap up our series in the Psalms, and next week we begin the Gospel of John, which will probably take us two, maybe three, maybe seven years. Who knows? We'll see. Before I begin, I want to thank um, the Walner Home Group and the Ulrich Home Group who are right now in the overflow room. Let's thank them. Maybe they can hear us. They're there to make room for all of you in here. So next week, there'll be three more small groups in that space, making room for all the new people. Well, let me pray once again as we jump into this difficult psalm. Father, we are so thankful that you have allowed us to gather today on the Lord's Day to worship your great name. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit now as I seek to communicate accurately the truths of Psalm 10. Lord, we long to hear from you. We long to experience your 
presence this morning through the preaching of your word. So come now by the power of the Holy Spirit to give each one of us the gift of understanding. We are in desperate need of mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. King Ahab was a exceedingly wicked man. He was never, ever content with what he had. He had vast amounts of resources, but he, had one th- but he saw one thing he did not have. He noticed a beautiful vineyard not too far from the palace, and he thought, I want that vineyard. But there was a problem. The vineyard belonged to a righteous man named Naboth, and it had been in Naboth's family for generations. And so Naboth was reluctant to sell this vineyard to King Ahab. Ahab begged and pleaded with Naboth, but Naboth said, no, I will not sell it to you. King Ahab was devastated. And his wicked wife, Jezebel, by the way, never name your daughter Jezebel. She was a very evil woman. She noticed that Naboth was drowning in a pool of self-pity. And she said, I'm sorry, Ahab. And she said, Ahab, what is wrong? Why are you so devastated? And he said through clenched teeth, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And she said, aren't you the king? In other words, you can do whatever you want. You have unlimited power. So she wasted no time. And she wrote a letter in the king's name to the elders of Naboth's village. And she said to them, you must frame Naboth and treat him like a scoundrel. She even encouraged two scoundrels to falsely testify against Naboth's character. And shortly after that, Naboth was condemned, accused, and he was put to death by stoning by his own people. This was a significant act of injustice by wicked people. And as soon as he was dead, of course, King Ahab acquired Naboth's vineyard. Now, this act of wickedness happened several thousand years ago. You can read about it in 1 Kings. But it could have happened in Spokane this last week. Oppression, injustice, wickedness, and violence have been around since day one. Now, I'm sure when this happened, Naboth's family probably wondered, God, why in the world are you allowing this to happen? Why are the wicked thriving? God, why are you not doing anything about King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel? They seem to be thriving, yet the righteous Naboth is dead, and his land has been violently taken from him. When bad things happen to innocent victims, and nothing is done about it, many of us have the same questions. God, why are you allowing the evil to thrive? God, where is the justice? God, why do you seem to be absent in our hour of need? God, do you even exist? 
These were the very questions that King David asked in Psalm 10. Now, although Psalm 10 doesn't answer all of those questions, Psalm 10 makes it very, very clear that when the wicked are thriving, God hears the cry of the afflicted. I'll say it again. When the wicked seem to be thriving and flourishing, God still hears the cry of the afflicted. Now, this psalm is broken down into two groups. There's the wicked and there's the afflicted. We're going to look at both those groups this morning. First the wicked, then the afflicted. So first is the wicked. And what do we learn about the wicked in verses 2 to 11? We learn a lot. These are not nice people. The wicked oppress the poor. Look at verse 2 with me. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The wicked also deny God's existence. Look at verse 3 and 4. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The wicked are arrogant. Verse 5 and 6. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high. Out of his sight, as for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. By the way, pride is the root of all sin. And the wicked, described in verses 2 to 11, exemplify arrogance and pride. In addition, the wicked sin with their lips. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. One scholar notes that the sins of speech or of the tongue are the most common forms of violence in the Psalms. So next time you think, What's the big deal? Just a little gossip, a little slander, a small lie. Those are sins of violence. The wicked also murder the poor and the innocent. Verses 8 to 10. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. Why are the poor such easy victims for the rich and the powerful? The poor don't have connections in high places. The poor can't afford lawyers. The poor are often uneducated. The poor may not know the language or their legal rights. They have no clout with the city council, which is why the Bible repeatedly exhorts us to defend the rights of the poor and the needy, Proverbs 31, 9. The wicked also think they will go unpunished which is the height of arrogance. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. He will never see my sins. I will go scot-free. 
Why do the wicked commit genocide? Why do the wicked exploit workers? Why do the wicked sell porn to kids? Because they think they'll get away with it. In verses 2 to 11, David describes in graphic detail the character of the wicked. And the wicked are still active 3,000 years later. Just a few months ago, while I was on vacation, I received several frantic texts and emails saying this, Dave, your email got hacked. Or, Dave, do you really need $500 in Target gift cards? <laughs> so what happened? Here's what happened. It's an old scam. My email was not hacked. There are criminals out there in cyberspace that victimize churches. They go to church websites, and they track down the names of pastors. Then they create fake emails in the names of the pastors. So one of these guys or gals, don't want to be sexist here, it could have been a gal, could have been a guy, I don't know. Um, one of these persons created an email, pastordave at gcfonline.org. Then they somehow got a hold of a GCF email list, which, by the way, has been secured since then. Then they began to email several people in this church saying, hey, um, so-and-so, Janie, Sue, Jake, Josh, Aaron, whatever your name is, this is Pastor Dave. Um, I'm kind of in a bind right now. I'm really busy. I'm doing this or that. Would you be willing to go to Target and buy me $500 in gift cards and I will reimburse you? By the way, I will never, ever, ever ask you to go to Target and buy me gift cards. <laughs> Maybe Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, but not Target, okay? <laughs> and apparently, these emails were very convincing. I should show for some hands who all got this email. Okay, look around, okay? A lot of you got this email. And because so many of you are so kind and generous and eager to serve, you engage this scammer in an email conversation. Several of you engaged in several emails. Some of you even went to Target and bought gift cards because you're so kind and generous. Okay, what was happening here? You were being victimized. The kind and the generous and the naive were being oppressed by scam artists. Not much has changed in 3,000 years. It happens all the time. I recently read a tragic story about a couple who slogged through eight years of medical school, then residency. They didn't have kids, and so the wife worked full-time, prolonged having kids, prolonged having a life to put her husband through medical school and residency. She made great sacrifices to pay all the bills. And a few weeks after residency was over, the husband served her divorce papers. He just used her for eight years 
to get through medical school and residency, and now they're no longer compatible. She was being oppressed, victimized. Wicked people have always done wicked things. But David's specific concern in Psalm 10 is not so much that wickedness is happening. David's specific concern is, God, why are you doing nothing about all the wickedness that I see with my eyes all around me? This brought David great consternation. Look with me at verse 1. David says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David asked two provocative questions. God, where in the world are you? God, why are you hiding in times of trouble? These are awfully bold questions. These almost seem like accusations, don't they? By the way, according to D.A. Carson, the most commonly asked question in the Bible is, how long, O Lord? The psalmist here is encouraging us to have a very open and honest dialogue with the maker of all things. David is essentially raising the age-old question, the problem of evil. Yahweh, if you are good and if you are just and if you are all-powerful, why is there so much wickedness that's going unpunished? These people seem to be getting away with murder, literally, according to verse 8. How many of us have asked the same question? God, where in the world are you? When I was a sophomore in high school, I saved all my paper route money to buy the most expensive mountain bike on the market. This was back in 1992. It was a Paramount 70 with Shimano XT components, the best components on the market back in the day. I rode my bike a few weeks later to my friend Tom Story's house in a very nice neighborhood. I set the bike in his front yard for like two minutes, ran around to the backyard, and then quickly came back to the front yard, and my bike was gone, stolen. And I thought, Lord, I got up at 4.50 a.m. for like a year to deliver 75 papers to 75 houses in the snow, in the dark, in the rain, the sleet, and the cold, all for nothing. Because the bike is gone. And in a 15-year-old sort of way, I raised the question of theodicy. God, why did you let this happen? As far as I know, those rotten criminals were never brought to justice. But there's a day coming. <laughs> I know of a few situations 
where the wife left the faith, then left the marriage, and then turned the kids against the Christian father. I know three situations like that. Leaving us to wonder, God, why? What about the honest businessman who was stabbed in the back by his corrupt partner? What about the manager who lies and cheats and uses people yet seems to be climbing the corporate ladder faster than a rocket? Why? What about the child molester and the rapist who go unpunished? Why do the wicked seem to be winning? Why is God withholding justice? Or worse, God, do you even exist? How should the afflicted respond to these situations? Well, that brings us to the second point. So first, the wicked. Second, the afflicted. King David provides us with a wonderful response for us to emulate. How should the afflicted respond? For starters, the afflicted can pray for deliverance. David prays boldly in verses 12 to 15 for deliverance. Verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. That phrase, Arise, O Lord, is called is a call or a summons to battle. And when David says to God to lift up your hand, he's saying, lift up your hand for battle, to wage war on my, on my enemies, to provide me with deliverance. Then verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So David is asking the question, in verse 13, why do the wicked think they'll not give an account for their wickedness? But then David answers his own question with verse 14. He says, but God, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take into your hands to, the, to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. David says, God, you, you do see you will at some point punish the wicked. And in verse 15, remember, he's still praying for deliverance. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Now, breaking the arm was symbolic language for breaking the power David is saying, God, break the power of the wicked so they'll stop oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. With that said, we must be careful not to sanitize this phrase too much because there are stories in the Bible where God brings down violence on the wicked in this life. Back to the story of King Ahab and his wicked wife, Jezebel. God raised up Elijah the prophet to confront these two wicked people. 
And Elijah says to them, because of your wickedness, King Ahab, you will die in battle and so will all your sons. And he says, Jezebel, because of your wickedness, the dogs will lap up your blood. And that's exactly what happened in 1 Kings 22. King Ahab died a violent death in battle, so did all of his sons. And then Queen Jezebel is in her palace at Jezreel. And the man of God shows up, and he's, she's up there in, the, in the, like three or four stories up looking down on him, and the man of God says, who is on my side? And her soldiers throw her over the ledge. And she falls and dies, and then literally the dogs, the mangy scoundrels, lick up her blood fulfilling exactly what Elijah predicted. Sometimes when God delivers the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable, he resorts to violence. Verse 12 to 15 is a prayer of deliverance for the afflicted. Are you feeling afflicted or oppressed or in need of deliverance this morning? When you feel that way, what should you do? David encourages us to pray. Brother Andrew was a Bible smuggler. In the 60s, he earned the nickname God's Smuggler for smuggling Bibles through the Iron Curtain into communist Romania. He was an incredibly brave and courageous man. In one situation, he pulled up to a checkpoint, trying to get into Romania, and there was a long line. And his, his little car was packed full of Bibles. They were everywhere, at every square inch of his car. And the car in front of him had been inspected for over an hour. They literally took off the hubcaps, took out the seats, took the engine out of the car to inspect every little nook and cranny looking for contraband. So Brother Andrew was expecting to be stopped, probably thrown in jail, maybe worse. Because what he had was illegal. So he prayed, Lord, what should I do? And he felt God telling him to put some Bibles out on the seat next to him. What? He thought? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, God. And then he realized that no human ingenuity, no cleverness would get him out of this difficult situation. His car was going to be inspected, and there were Bibles everywhere. So if he put Bibles right next to his seat and he, and he was delivered, he would know that it was God who delivered him. And so the line inched forward, and he finally got to the guard. And the guard said, show me your papers. And so he breathed a, a huge breath, and his heart rate sped up a little bit, and he began to sweat, and he handed the guy his papers. And the guard looked at him, gave him his papers back, and rushed him through the line. <laughs> Brother Andrew thought, maybe he just wants me to pull forward so he can inspect my car somewhere else. 
But as he pulled forward, he looked at his mirror, and the car behind him in line was being stopped, and they were taking the car apart to inspect it. What's the point? He was in desperate need of deliverance, and all he could do was pray. Sometimes that's all we can do. If you're like me and someone says to you, Dave, I'll pray for you, I often think, that's all you can do? <laughs> like, that's it? You can't actually like, help me physically or tangibly? Am I the only one who feels that way sometimes? <laughs> but sometimes prayer is the best thing and the only thing that you can do especially when you're in need of deliverance from oppressive people. That's the application. It's that simple. It's not complicated. When you're in need of deliverance from wicked people, David exhorts us to pray. To pray. Why? Because when we pray, we are speaking to the maker of all things who is all-powerful. He is able to deliver. Well, the afflicted can pray for deliverance. In addition, the afflicted can trust God. Look with me at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Now keep in mind that this verse is in the context of David's questions. God, where are you? God, why the injustice? God, why are you missing in action? Then David boldly confesses, the Lord is king forever and ever, and the nations perish from his land. What is David saying about God in verse 16? He is saying, the Lord is king, Yahweh is king, which means that God rules and reigns over every single detail of your life. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul does not say that God works some things according to the counsel of his will, or God works the good things according to the counsel of his will. No, he says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He is sovereign. He reigns over the wicked, and he reigns over your life. And sometimes, that's all we need to know. God is sovereign. He rules, and he reigns, which means we can trust him. David also says that Yahweh is the eternal king. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. God is timeless. He is eternal. God created time. God created space. God created matter. 
God spoke those things into existence out of nothing. I have no clue how that works. But Genesis 1 and John 1 both claim that. God is timeless. God is eternal, which means that God is a being of infinite power, infinite worth, infinite value. He has always existed. Going back 30 trillion years, he existed. Now, if God is timeless, if God is eternal, you and I should expect some mystery in our lives. Because we are not timeless, we are not eternal. We live 80 or 90 years, maybe 100 years tops. Which brings us back to the problem of evil. Would you expect a spider or a fruit fly or a butterfly to understand the inner workings of an iPhone 12 or Elon Musk's newest Tesla or differential equations? Of course not. Yet, you can actually measure the distance between you and I and moths and spiders. But you can't measure the distance between you and I and God. He is eternal. He is infinite. Notice here that David does not go into an in-depth theodicy. That is, he does not provide a detailed answer to the problem of evil. Side note on that, I think the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the problem of evil and suffering. And the atheist worldview falls totally flat when it comes to addressing that question of why is there evil in the world. And I'm going to spend two whole lectures on that in Sunday school starting in about two or three weeks. There are answers, Christians, for the problem of evil. But David doesn't go there in Psalm 10. <laughs> David simply says, God is sovereign and God is eternal, period. And if he is those two things, we can trust him. And we should expect that there is going to be a great amount of mystery in the universe. How is it that God controls all things, yet he's not the author of evil, and we make real choices that matter? I don't know. Furthermore, God's justice may not be on our timetable. We can trust him. He's the king, and he's eternal. He has the power to do what's right and to do what's best for his children. The afflicted can pray for deliverance. The afflicted can trust God. And furthermore, the afflicted can find tremendous hope in the gospel. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. 
You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who was of the earth may strike terror no more. David is confident that God will hear his cry. David is confident that God will strengthen his heart, and David is also confident that God will execute justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. But did God hear David's cry? Does God hear our cry? The human race has been crying out for deliverance for thousands of years. The history of the human race is one long history of oppression and, of vi- and violence and injustice. Historians Will and Ariel Durant wrote in their famous multi-volume his- historical work, the last 3,421 years of recorded history, there's only been 268 years with no war. Oppression has been the norm. And sin is the root cause of all oppression and violence and wickedness and injustice. If the human race has been crying out for deliverance for all these years, why hasn't God done anything about it? He has. He sent his only son Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man to earth to experience firsthand violence and injustice and wickedness and oppression. God does not sit far away and look down on us and do nothing. God sent his only son to earth to experience affliction. Was there anyone treated more unjustly than Jesus Christ? No. How? He's the only perfect person to ever live. Of all people, he deserved to be treated with love and kindness and worship and honor, yet, He was spit on, he was mocked, he was crucified, he was treated as a criminal even though he was innocent. Why did Jesus endure all that? For a couple reasons. First, he died to break the power of sin. He died so that you and I could be forgiven of all of our wickedness and oppression. When he died, all of our sins were punished in him if we're Christians, which means we don't have to fear the day of future judgment because our judgment happened in the past at Calvary where Jesus suffered and died for all of our sins, paying their full penalty, absorbing the wrath of his Father. Jesus also died. He also experienced affliction and violence and injustice so that he could sympathize with you when you experience affliction and oppression and wickedness and injustice. 
He knows what it's like to be treated unfairly. And he had questions for his own father. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask God questions when life is hard. King David did and King Jesus did. That was the first coming of Christ. When Christ came the first time, he came as a poor, weak lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. But when Christ comes again, he will come as a mighty, victorious warrior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will execute on that day perfect justice. In the meantime, we must pray for our enemies that they would not experience the wrath of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We must pray that God would help us to love them and serve them. And we must pray that they would put their hope and confidence in King Jesus. In the meantime, until that day, Christians are called to follow the example of Jesus, working for justice, working for peace, loving and serving our enemies while we wait for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come once again and make all things right and all things new. Let's pray.